0: Okay. uh, uh, I'm Alam Payand. I'm the director of the Middle East Studies Center at The Ohio State University. And before introducing our guest speaker today, I would like to make an announcement. Tuesday, October the 14th, uh, we will have a guest speaker from BBC London. Uh, His name is Dawood Azami. Uh, He will speak on drugs, money, opium, crime, and insurgency in Afghanistan. So that's our tradition that we will have to announce our next guest speaker, also sponsored by the Murshan Center and the Ohio State University's Middle East Studies Center. Um, I'm really pleased to introduce to you um, our today's guest, Professor Juan Cole. He is Richard P. Mitchell, collegiate professor of history at the University of Michigan, He has written extensively about Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and South Asia. Uh, In addition to his teaching, research, and publications, he has given numerous media and press interviews on the war on terrorism since September 11, 2001. He has also commented extensively on the Iraq war, the politics of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and the increasing conflict with Iran. He has a regular column at Salon.com, he continues to study and write about contemporary Islamic movements, whether mainstream or radical, whether Sunni and Salafi are Shiite. Dr. Cole commands Arabic, Persian, Urdu, and reads Turkish, knows both Middle Eastern and South Asian Islam, and lived in numerous places in the Muslim world for extended periods of time. Uh, I looked at his CV. He lived and conducted research uh, for six years in the Arab world, in two years in the subcontinent of India, uh, especially in, in main, major cities of, of Delhi, Lucknow, and Lahore. For three decades, he has sought to put the relationship of the West and Muslim world in historical context, and his most recent book is Engaging the Muslim World, will be published by Paul Grave Macmillan, it will it will appear in two thousand and nine. And his he has also recently authored Napoleon's Egypt, Invading the Middle East, also by, by Macmillan, which appeared in two thousand and seven. He has been a regular guest on PBS's Letters News Hour and also appeared on ABC's Nightly News, Nightline, The Today Show, Charlie Rose. Anderson Cooper, 360, Countdown with Keith uh, uh, Olbermann, Democracy Now!, and many others. He has also given many radio and press interviews. Uh, Today, the title of his presentation is, Can Ayatollah Sistani's Alternative to Khomeiniism Survive? Uh, We could not find a better speaker and a better authority on this subject, so we invited Dr. Cole. Please... Join me in welcoming him.
1: Make sure this thing is on just a second. There. Thank you so much for that very warm uh, and kind introduction, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, uh, for a talk on a subject that is maybe uh, uh, important but uh, won't, won't get the headlines. Uh, I want to talk about what I think Sistani's vision for Iraq has been, where it comes from, and uh, we'll talk uh, towards the end about uh, how likely it is to be implemented. So... The premise that I'm beginning with is that uh, Shiite Islam has a theory or a set of theories about statecraft through history. Uh, there have been vigorous arguments uh, on these matters. But that at the core of the Shiite tradition is a conundrum, uh, which is that legitimate, legitimate, the sources of legitimate political power are not obvious in the Shiite system. Uh, the Shiites invested a great deal in insisting that the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad should be the rulers of Islam, uh, that uh, unlike the Sunnis who were perfectly happy to have the Prophet's in-laws more or less be the the Caliphs, uh, that there should be a blood connection, almost a dynastic principle. And the great uh, irony and the great uh, trick that history played on the Shiites was that after they had invested all of this emotion and uh, doctrinal writing in the idea of the descendants of the prophet ruling, uh, the line that they invested in stopped, which is something that can happen to dynasties. And uh, they developed this uh, story of the 12th imam as a small child going into occultation, disappearing from the ordinary world, or some would say living amongst us as an immortal but uh, but not apparent to us. And so, in the absence of the prophet and the imam, who rules? And this is something that is not is not clear from early Shiite doctrine. Uh, the uh, clerics who write about these things uh, uh, have often uh, talked about, and I saw this in manuscripts in India, have talked about the civil government, the government of sultans, as an Orfi government, as a common law government, which is to say, without the sanction of Sharia, without the sanction of uh, of divine approval. Uh, And so there is a possible attitude in the Shiite tradition of just muddling along, getting along in the absence of a divinely authorized uh, government, uh, which from a Shiite point of view is, is, is uh, extremely undesirable, but it may just be the situation you find yourself in. And then, since the Shiite, early Shiite jurists had invested so much authority and power in the Imams and the descendants of the Prophet, uh, it even raised questions about running the religion. In the absence of the imam, who is now absent, who appoints the Friday prayer leaders? Who has that authority? Who uh, who appoints the people to collect religious taxes? To whom do you give your zakat? Uh, and uh, there are a whole range of religious institutions that have to be appointed and cared for by some legitimate authority, which in Shiite Islam could no longer exist. And so the Akbari school, the school of the, uh, of the devotees of the sayings and doings of the Imams uh, and the Prophet, uh, often alleged that in the absence of the Imam, those functions had lapsed. There could be no Friday prayers. There could be no collection of zakat. In fact, one akhbari jurist advised that one collect zakat from oneself and bury it, because on the judgment day, then it would be thrown up, and you, you would, you know, you would have paid your dues. So, my own advice is to budding archaeologists: once Iraq settles down, <laughs> start digging um, uh, where the akhbari's were. Um, now. The alternative school uh, to the Akhbaris that grew up in the medieval period over time, and Devin Stewart has argued, under strong influence of the Shafi school in Sunni Islam, uh, developed a a theory of the clergy, of of seminary-trained experts in Shiite law as being able to stand proxy for the imam in some functions. Not general. They're they're nab not they, they are a general representative of the imam and not a, not a special one. And so the, the, the clergy could authorize the, the appointment of Friday prayer leaders, could authorize the collection of religious taxes for the state, could give the khutbah or the, uh, the Friday prayer sermon in the name of the sultan, uh, and so could carve out a, a, a sphere of life, uh, in the absence of the imam, which nevertheless would affirm Shiite institutional and religious values. And over time, in most of the Shiite world, the Usuli school won out. I have a suspicion that it won out in part because it's far more amenable to the Shiite government to have such a school than the Ahvares who uh, would would be delegitimizing you. And Qajar Iran was uh, developed from 1789 uh, as essentially an Osuli state. The high clergy were Osulis, and uh, both the clergy and the civil bureaucrats talked about a theory of statecraft in Qajar Iran in which uh, uh, the, the state had two wings it had the civil authorities. Uh, what were called the nokar class. It's a Mongol word meaning servant, but it's it's the opposite. The bureaucrats in in Iran uh, had most of the wealth and power, uh, so they were servants of the king maybe. Um, uh, So the nokar class are the the semi-feudal bureaucrats on the one hand, and then the clerics were the other wing of the state, uh, and they were the educators and the judges and, uh, and had their own functions in society. So there was a condominium uh, of, uh, of religion and state um, uh, which was legitimate from the point of view both of the uh, civil state and the, the clerics. Um, but that theory of state, where you have a a sultan who's kind of a common law sultan, but rehabilitates himself to some extent by appointing clerics and making a place for the religious institutions in his realm. That theory of statecraft in the Qajar Empire was challenged by the Constitutional Revolution of 1905-1911. And one of the primary theorists of the uh, Constitutional Revolution uh, was a man named Non Eni. Uh, who lived in Najaf, uh, uh, Najaf in, then in the Ottoman Empire in Iraq. And so the Shah couldn't get a hold of him there. It was a good place for Iranian revolutionary. And Na'ani maintained in his uh, famous book that in the absence of the 12th Imam, a true Islamic government couldn't be constructed, but a, the type of government that would be most compatible with Shiite Islam until the return of the Imam would be a parliamentary regime. Why? Because in a parliamentary regime, the general will of the Shiite public could be expressed, and the consensus of all the Shiites would be the closest you could get to a best conjecture for what the, the, the will of the Imam is. So the, the Usuli theory was that the cleric uh, would 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 divine the will of the imam through his reasoning process and knowledge of the texts. Uh, and the Usuli theory was that he could do that under the shadow of the of the sultan. But this constitutional theory actually made a place for Shiite republicanism because it says that it's not, it's neither the sultan nor the cleric that uh, is the best approximation of the will of the imam, but the Shiite public exercising its rights through voting. Uh, Now, Ngaani was not a Democrat. Uh, He was a Republican with a small r. And he wouldn't have wanted the people just to be able to do anything they liked. And there was always this conundrum for any... Committed Muslim thinker of the late 19th, early 20th century who took up parliamentary uh, governance as a subject is that what would stop the people from legislating libertinism, from legislating atheism, from l- legislating brothels, uh, and so forth? And so these thinkers typically tried to put some kind of break on democracy. Uh, on the will of the people as a source of legislation. And in the Constitutional Revolution in Iran, the break in the Constitution as it was negotiated was a a judicial panel of five members of clerics who would have powers of review, just as the American Supreme Court has powers of review over, over legislation as to whether it's constitutional. This committee of five clerics would have the power to strike down civil legislation, which, which they felt was incompatible with Islamic law. Uh, and that kind of arrangement is implicit in also in Na'ani. Now, I'm telling you all this about the Constitutional Revolution and Na'ani because I think that it is extremely influential for Sistani. Uh, and I do have some evidence for this, not just conjecture. So Sistani gave an interview with the Jordanian newspaper Array, uh, in which he was asked about the rebuilding of Najaf. This is after the fighting in 2004. And he said, well, yes, it should be rebuilt, but that's not the most important thing in the world. After all, Najaf is a spiritual center, and so the thinking that goes on there and the spirituality that is promoted there is more important than the, the mere buildings. And he said as part of this interview uh, to underline his point was that during the Constitutional Revolution uh, Najaf was a much less well-developed city than Qom, uh, the Iranian seminary city, but had a much bigger impact on the movement for constitutionalism than Qom because of its spiritual supremacy. Now in, in Shiite politics, This is a Najafi putting the shiv in the ribs and then twisting it uh, because there's a rivalry between Qom and Najaf. And it is perfectly true that the Sayyids and the Seminarians of Qom were not important in the Constitutional Revolution and did not come out in a big way for it uh, in the way that several prominent Najafis did. Of course, the real reason for this in my view as a social historian, is that Najaf was under Ottoman control and and therefore the Shah couldn't get at people there, whereas if you spoke out in Qom, your head could be cut off. But in any case, this quote demonstrates that it's to me that, that Sistani is situating himself in a Najafi tradition of thinking about constitutionalism in Shiite terms and... I think is associating himself with Nouri. And Nouri's book on Shiite constitutionalism, um, of course, fell out of favor in the Pahlavi period in Iran, uh, and I think Reza Shah did not like it. But uh, during that period of uh, a relative uh, um, uh, intellectual uh, freedom in Iran, and the late 40s and uh, into the early 50s, it got reprinted. I forget exactly what date, but Nani was reprinted around the time that Sistani would have been a young man, 22, 23. Uh, so I, th- I think that uh, uh, Na'ini was influential on him. And Na'ini's ideas about Shiism and constitutionalism, by the way, were influential on a large number of, of Sistani's generation in Iran and 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 the republication of this book in the fifties did have an impact uh, uh, widely, I think, on the, uh, the people who made the Iranian Revolution. So Sistani was born in Mashhad uh, in 1930. Uh, was was went to school there, uh, and in 48 uh, goes off to Qom uh, to study with Boro Jardi who was the leading. Uh, Religious authority, the Marja uh, in Iran of that time, and, and widely acknowledged as such throughout the Shiite world. Uh, Borojardi was relatively apolitical, and his school was known for that. And in fact, it is said that Khomeini, who was much more political and also a Borojardi student, waited to become an activist until after Borojardi died, by which time Khomeini was already, I think, 60. Um, In 1951, Sistani goes off to Najaf to study with the great clerics there. And Najaf, you know, the Najafi clerics, kind of like Jesuits. It's a a very intellectual, subtle tradition that they have. Uh, and, And Sistani acquitted himself well. I once tried to work through a little bit of one of the major books that they tend to study, Murtad al Ansari's al makasib which is on Shiite commercial law, and um, I quickly saw that I would need at least one more PhD uh, uh, in, uh, in in Fiqhi Arabic uh, before I'd be able to make heads or tails of that book. This is the Sistani is the, the world's foremost expert on Murtad al Ansari's al makasib so. Uh, uh, a great uh, thinker on Shiite uh, commercial law. Sistani was in Iraq during the Mossadegh period. And I, I, I can only speculate this. I've never seen a, a quote from Sistani about Mossadegh. Uh, and, uh, however, uh, I can only think that the CIA overthrow of the Iranian government uh, in order to uh, uh, nail down Western access to Iranian petroleum which was very unwelcome to many of the Shiite clergy, including Ayatollah Kaushani, who was uh, Mossadegh's uh, uh, ally, uh, must have had an effect. And indeed, if we conjecture uh, that Sistani was influenced by Na'ani and by the Najafi tradition of Shiite constitutionalism, then what would he have seen through his life? He was a young man when he went to Najaf but the failure on every front of Muslim constitutionalism. So the constitutional regime in Iraq of the monarchy, with all of its flaws, nevertheless did produce parliamentary elections and, uh, and uh, uh, a relatively independent judiciary and so forth. That's overthrown by military dictatorship in 1958, And the military dictatorship is overthrown by the Ba'ath Party uh, twice, but they make it stick in 1968. So you get a one-party state. The constitutionalism in Iran (coughs) yielded already in in, in 1925-26 to the Pahlavi dictatorship uh, and and the, the, the Mossadegh honeymoon with parliamentarism was overthrown by the CIA and the Shah was installed as a uh, dictator, uh, and then ultimately the Shah was overthrown by the the Khomeinist movement. And as far as I can tell, Sistani does not like Khomeinism. I can't entirely explain this. It, it may partially be uh, a, a a competition uh, of Najaf with Iran, but Rasan um, Atiya, who is a uh, an Iraqi contemporary politician uh, and um, who tried his best to establish a secular party that would appeal across ethnic and religious lines and failed. Ghassan Atiyah told me that he went to see Sistani uh, and Sistani uh, uh, got to talking about the Khomeini system in Iran and he told Atiyah because there were fears that Sistani might be a stealth Khomeinist. So he told Atiyah, according to Atiyah, Will allow a even if I should have to die. Land fil Iraq, mahasala fil Iran. What happened in Iran will not be allowed to, to repeat itself in Iraq. So um, I I printed this actually uh, uh, my my uh, conversation with Atiya, and uh, somebody. You know, Sistani has a website where you can ask him questions. Uh, Iraqi Shiite asked him if he said that, and uh, I was told that Sistani denied it. But that could be diplomatic. There are lots of anecdotes in the press about Sistani not getting along with the Iranians. You know, when he had heart trouble in uh, summer of 2004, he uh, uh Ma'ad Fayyad, who's an um, uh, Iraqi journalist based in London, uh, reported that uh, Sistani's rep, uh, S- I mean, um, uh, Khamenei's representative in Najaf came to Sistani and said, look, you know, you have heart trouble, you come to Tehran, we've got the best heart surgeons, we'll take care of you very nicely. Uh, and uh, Sistani is said to have replied, well, what Iran can do for me is to stay out of Iraqi affairs. And then he flew to London for his heart uh, surgery. He had angioplasty. So, um, uh, of course, you can't believe everything that appears in the press. But we do know that Sistani could have gone to Iran, and he didn't. He went to London. And we know Abdulaziz al-Hakim made the opposite choice. He went to Iran for his cancer treatment. And I take Sistani's actions to to indicate uh, displeasure with the regime. I think he did not approve of the great terror of the 1980s when a lot of people were killed for thought crimes uh, and that uh, Khomeinism doesn't look to him like a, a parliamentary system. Now, of course, Sistani's influence really only runs in the Shiite areas, the green part in the south uh, and Baghdad. Uh, Sunni Arabs, the, the, who inhabit the white part of the map, uh, uh, are very suspicious of Sistani, see him as a kind of cat's paw for Iran, ironically enough. Uh, and um, uh, he has had uh, tiffs with the Kurds in the north, uh, the brown part of the map, because he favors a strong central government, uh, does, does not uh, approve, I think, of the loose kind of central government, that uh, loose federalism that the Kurds are promoting. And uh, Sistani also is a majoritarian. Uh, it's, it's one of the flaws, in my view, of Sistani's way of thinking that he, he believes in majority rule. Uh, and so he has, um, I, I would argue, he's a kind of Rousseauian. And I think he's read Rousseau. Uh, and so the will, of the, the will of the electorate is what rules. And of course, the, one of the major flaws with Rousseau is that he was inattentive to minority rights. Uh, and um, you know, it wasn't a Rousseauian system that produced our Connecticut Compromise uh, or our Bill of Rights. Uh, and so, Sistani lacks that Madisonian uh, element uh, to his thinking about parliamentary regimes. And so, he's not sympathetic to the Kurds' secessionist tendencies, and he wasn't at all happy about the Kurds um, putting into the interim. Uh, constitution a provision whereby they could reject the uh, uh, the permanent constitution which was crafted uh, in summer of 2005 if if three provinces rejected well the Kurds control three provinces so they had a veto on that constitution uh, Ironically enough they liked the constitution that was produced but the Sunnis didn't and the Sunnis almost Rejected on those grounds. Sistani did not like that idea that three provinces out of the 18 could shoot down a constitution that the vast majority of Iraqis wanted. And so he's had his problems with the Kurds. In an Iraqi context, Shiite political activism uh, really was formed around the Dawah Party. Um, There had been, back in the 30s, you know, under the monarchy, uh, parties that represented Shiite constituents, but they weren't ideologically Shiite for the most part, whereas the Dawa Party uh, was founded in the late 50s as an explicit answer, I think, to the communists and the, and the Ba'athists as a Shiite version, which would work for a... just as the communists were working for a worker's paradise, Dawah would work for a Shiite paradise. It would have an is- Islamic state. Islamic law would be implemented... And, and, and one of its major theorists, Muhammad Bakr al uh, uh, argued for uh, that, that Islamic law, if properly implemented and interpreted, would solve all those problems that socialism uh, uh, tried to address. It would eliminate poverty and, and so forth. Uh, and in a sadrs system, he does talk about shura or consultation. He does seem to think think that there would be some kind of an elected legislature but he's not explicit in the way that Na'ini was that he's talking about something very like the British parliamentary model within Shiite terms. Uh, It's much more vague and you could imagine a relatively dictatorial system that had elected counselors uh, uh, in in the way that Sutter talks about. Uh, Sutter did not envisage the cleric's ruling in his Islamic state. So laypeople could come to power uh, as well. Sutter's ideological rival in Najaf uh, from the late 60s and into the 70s was Ruhollah Khomeini who was expelled from Iran in 1964 after he got up riots in 1963 against the Shah and the American bases and uh, extraterritoriality, one of the Issues that Khomeini was most exercised about was that American troops on Iranian soil were not under uh, Iranian law and couldn't be tried in Iranian courts. Uh, so, um, uh, as you know, Khomeini made his revolution in 79 and promulgated uh, earlier from Najaf uh, in a, a book called Islamic Governance, Hokumat uh, e islami a theory of governance in which uh, the leading the most upright, the most learned, the most popular Shiite cleric, uh, who in Usuli Shiism anyway would be the major source of religious authority, should also run the government. Uh, So he developed a theory of theocracy. And he represented this theory as rooted in the Shiite tradition and the ancient texts and so forth. I can't see it myself. I think it's an innovation. I don't think anybody said anything like that and lived in the medieval period. I think the this, this Shah would have cut their heads off. One of, one of the things that Khomeini says is that the early Shiite texts talk about uh, Ali appointing mediators which, who were called Hakim uh, in various places to mediate disputes among the early Muslims. And Hakim, which is governor, is from the same root as Hakim. And, and I think there's a disease of language effect here whereby Khomeini argues that the word Hakim means ruler. Ali was appointing governors and things like that. Uh, and um, no. I don't think there's any evidence for this. So in any case, uh, Khomeini puts forward this theory that the clerics should rule in the absence of the imam. And this is yet another possible solution to the conundrum of the absence of legitimate authority in the Shiite tradition. Uh, uh, the, the older Qajar compromise was that the sultan would rule, but would make a place for Sh- Shiite institutions and uh, and law in Qajar society. Khomeini is, is saying the clerics should rule. And the clerics, as general representatives of the imam would be best placed to know what his will was. Uh, so, um, again, this is, um, this is not Na'ani's theory of, of Shiite democracy. Uh, it is a theocratic theory. Uh, in the 80s, uh, because of the Iranian Revolution, uh, the Ba'ath Party cracked down hard on the Dawah, uh, there are lots of little mass graves around Iraq with hundreds of people in them who had been members of the Dawah party. Uh, a, a lot of Shiite leaders were executed uh, who had been a, pro- been a part of the party. There's no evidence of Sistani uh, being close to Dawah. Uh, and indeed, Dawa, when asked, said that they followed uh, uh, Muhammad Hussein uh, Fadlallah in, in Lebanon. Which is Interesting choice. And Fadlallah, uh, I, I, I think, was, was known to be a political radical, uh, had his own tiffs with Iran, so was kind of independent. Of course, one of his major advantages for Dawah was being a lay party. They didn't want too much interference from clergy. In the Shiite system, you, you have to have a clerical guide so Fadlallah, being off in, in Beirut was wonderful for the Iraqi dawah because he couldn't, uh, he couldn't interfere too much. Whereas if they had said Sistani, then he's right there with them. So um, in the 90s, after the failed 1991 uprising, which Saddam put down with great brutality and probably cost 60,000 uh, lives, especially in the Shiite South, uh, two figures emerged from as, as potential leaders of the Shiites, uh, not only of Iraq, but typically, you know, the, the leading cleric in Najaf tends to be the one chosen in uh, in Lebanon, Pakistan, and, and uh, elsewhere uh, as the Shiite leader. And even uh, some Iranians might, uh, might choose to follow the Najaf uh, cleric. So um, uh, one was uh, uh, Sistani, uh, who um, was known for his erudition and uh, for his caution. He wasn't somebody who to take on Saddam head-on. Uh, Saddam actually initially favored Sistani's rival because Sistani was coded as an Iranian, uh, and uh, uh, that was Mohammad Sadeq Sadr, a cousin of Mohammad Bakr Sadr, who helped to develop the Dawa Party. But at that time, in the early 90s, uh, willing, apparently, to uh, uh, avoid direct conflict with the regime, at least. Uh, And, of course, what I'm saying is extremely controversial in a Shiite Iraq. I probably would be strung up for suggesting that there was ever a moment in which Sadiq al-Sadr was on the same page with Saddam. But over time, Sadr came to have his own power base, he reached out especially to the poor Shiites and organized them, uh, to some extent, to the tribal Shiites in the countryside. And um, Saddam felt he was getting too big for his britches and so sent the uh, secret police to tell him to shut up. And uh, Sadat Qasadar was not a man who would shut up on being threatened. And he then preached his next sermon in a burial shroud, kafani, announcing that he was ready uh, if he was going to be martyred. And, well, Saddam was always willing to oblige uh, such, a, uh, uh, such a desire. And uh, so the following week he was he was mown down by machine gun fire with his two older sons. So, um, Sistani was criticized because he stopped even teaching parts of Shiite law that might bring him into conflict with, with Ba'ath policies. But, Sistani did survive, and and Sutter did not. After the fall of Saddam, Sistani suddenly emerges uh, and becomes much more active. And I suspect that he's just following Shiite law, which is if, in Shiite law, there's a provision called taqiyah, which is that if you think your beliefs put your life in danger, then you are to dissimulate, you are to hide those beliefs if people come looking for you who are fanatical Sunnis and are going to kill you because you're a Shiite, in Shiite law, you are obliged to tell them that, no, I'm, I'm a Sunni. Omar's my best friend. Uh, and, uh, and so I think Sistani was doing taqiyah from Saddam, and he made the, the juridical determination that once Saddam was overthrown, that under the American-installed uh, regime... Uh, indeed under the American regime of Mr. Bremer, that his life was not in danger from speaking out and that therefore he had a duty to do so. Uh, And so um, one of his first uh, uh, conflicts with the Americans came over the Constitution, the issue of the Constitution, because uh, Paul Bremer had a a plan drawn from post-war Germany uh, that had seven steps in it, And it was actually brought out from the Pentagon archives and translated from German. So at one point, uh, the text says that it's important to support the Iraqi Reichsmark. Um, So one of the seven stages was to appoint a committee to write a constitution. And so Bremer announced that he was going to do that. And Sistani came out with a fatwa in June of 2003, saying, oh, no, you don't. Saying that any constitution written by, uh, written for Iraq, must be written by elected delegates to an Iraqi Constituent Assembly. So the will of the Iraqi people has to be the, the fount of Iraqi constitutionalism. Now, this is quite a remarkable fatwa, uh, and it was politically remarkable because it did directly challenge the plans of the uh, viceroy, of uh, the American viceroy in Iraq. And um, uh, I think it shows, again, Sistani being in the Nā'ini tradition because it's saying that law has to well up from the people. There have to be elections and this is not a Khomeinist principle. Although there was uh, a, 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 the, the Iranian constitution uh, uh, did have a referendum on it, uh, it wasn't Khomeini's principle that the people had to craft the constitution. So uh, it, it, Bremer, of course, it, it knew nothing about Shiism, Iraq, or, or uh, the Middle East, and has, had been ambassador to, to Holland, Um, and uh, so he um, didn't know who Sistani really was or what the significance of this fatwa was. And uh, it is said, uh, he he at one point asked uh, one of his aides, couldn't we get a fatwa from some other mullah? Um, Not understanding that it's a hierarchy you're dealing with here. And, um, And indeed Bremer went in late summer of 2003 to the Iraqis he had appointed to the Interim Governing Council and saying, well, it's, it's time to get the Constitution written. And they all looked at him funny and said, well, we can't do that. And he said, well, why can't you do it? He says, well, we have the fatwa from Sistani. These were Bremer's appointees who refused to then to cooperate with him. Uh, and, uh, and Sistani did get his way on this. So uh, in the fatwa... Uh, He said um, there was no guarantee that an American-appointed constituent assembly would draft a constitution that conforms with the highest interests of the Iraqi people and which expresses its national identity, one basis of which is the pure Islamic religion and noble social values. Um, And he demanded that not only should the drafters of the constitution be elected, but then it should be submitted to a referendum, a popular referendum. Um, now Sistani is not a Jeffersonian democrat of course he does want Sharia to be the law of the land Uh, he does talk about clerics as as judges and justices and uh, he believes that clerics should influence the national debate on important issues by issuing fatwas or legal rulings which he would expect lay Shiites to obey Uh, but Unlike the Khomeini system, where the clerics are actually inserted into the government, so this commander-in-chief of the armed forces in Iran is the supreme leader, uh, is the highest jurisprudent, uh, Sistani doesn't want the clerics to be in the government. He wants them to have authority but not power. This is Max Weber's distinction, you know. Power is when somebody points a gun at me and says, do X, I would gladly do it. Uh, Authority is when somebody gives me an order and I do it because I recognize that that person has the authority to tell me to do that. Uh, And not because I'm just afraid of them. So Sistani wants the clerics to have authority in Iraqi society and politics, but he doesn't want them to have power doesn't want the clerics actually to be running the government. So he allows a lay parliament, a lay prime minister, uh, and and however he does support this idea, which goes back to the constitutional revolution in Iran, of a, a panel that would review legislation to make sure it's Islamic. Um, then Bremer suddenly announced as, as his government was collapsing around him in, in fall of 2003 that they would um, have what he called caucus-based elections in Iraq. And of course, this plan ran into a lot of problems in part because nobody could understand what the hell a caucus was, and there does not appear to be an Arabic translation of the word caucus, uh, and, um, and, and in part because... What was actually envisaged was that the provincial councils, which had been massaged into being by the Americans and the British, I think there was a company in Triangle Park, North Carolina, that was involved. Uh, The provincial councils were essentially friends of George. They were Iraqi local notables who were willing to cooperate with the Americans. They weren't elected, really. I mean, there might have been a meeting called and, and kind of a consensus formed around 40 of them. Uh, And and it's not that they were nobody in places like Al-Anbar or Samara or whatever, but they were not products of an open, genuine election. And, And the Bremer plan initially was to make them the electorate. So these provincial councils and some large municipal councils like Baghdad would assemble and would elect the Iraqi parliament. So it it disenfranchised the vast majority, I mean, almost all Iraqis, except for these provincial council and municipal council members. So Sistani was outraged. And he said of the Bremer plan, the instrumentality envisaged in it for electing the members of the transitional legislature does not guarantee the formation of a parliament that truly represents the Iraqi people. It must be changed to some other method which would guarantee it, and that is... Direct elections such that the parliament would derive from the will of the Iraqis and would represent them in a just manner and will safeguard it from any challenge to its legitimacy. So elections equals legitimacy. Uh, and, and this is quite remarkable, this, this phrase that Sistani uses in Arabic. al shab al-Iraqi. Legitimate government derives from the will of the Iraqi people. Now that just as I argued that Khomeini's idea of the clerics as rulers, which he says is in the ancient texts, is not, that phrase that I just said from Sistani also is unexampled in the history of Shiite thought. I've never seen anything quite like that. And it goes beyond Naani and the Constitutional Revolution. Uh, I mean, that's that really is 18th century Enlightenment thinking. Uh, And, of course, as a mujtahid, as a Shiite independent juridical thinker, Sistani is perfectly within his rights to import the Enlightenment into Shiite Islam, if he believes that it's compatible, indeed, that there is a positive reason to do so. So I'm not arguing that he's borrowing illegitimately, but that's not in in the books of the sayings of the Imam. And um, if I, I read the Iraqi newspapers a lot in this period, oh, I still read them a lot. But I'm, I'm just saying that you saw things coming out of Najaf press releases and so forth, which certainly represented the clerical establishment's view of things. And so, um, uh, in a statement issued early in October 2003. Um, the, the Interim Governing Council appointed by Bremer was talking about legislating on the issue of who was eligible for Iraqi citizenship. And this is a, a, a contentious issue because a lot of Iraqis, Sunnis, are afraid that Iranians could easily get Iraqi citizenship. And of course, there are a lot of Iranian people with Iranian last names who lived in Iraq for a very long time and were kicked out by Saddam and so forth. So... Um, Anyway, they disagreed with the way that this issue was being framed by the Interim Governing Council, this statement that came out of the clerics in uh, Najaf. And it said that the uh, Interim Governing Council had overstepped its bounds, should stick to providing basic services and security, because, especially because, since it lacks legitimacy, since it has not received the seal of approval from the noble religious authority and has not received the approval of the people via general election. This was Bremer's appointed counsel, uh, and, and it seems to me this is Sistaniism being expressed in this statement. Is that the sources of legitimacy are that the Marja, the, the religious authority, approves of it, and that it has a seal of approval from the people via elections. Uh, a Sunni did an interview in February of 2004 with uh, with Sistani, a Sunni engineer. I corresponded with him later. Uh, he said um, the important thing here is uh, he, he expressed his willingness to die as a martyr for the unity of I- I- Iraq against the Americans. And he says, he said to this man, he does not believe in Walayatul Faqih as the clergy in Iran do. Uh, he repeatedly stressed that religion has to be separated from government. Now, of course, this is an oral report from a Sunni, uh, but they were speaking in Arabic, and um, uh, I think, given what else we know about Sistani, it's it's probably fairly accurate. Separation of religion and state is the wrong way to put it, of course, because Sistani doesn't believe in that. But um, uh, um, a, a separate... Spear for Shiite activism, uh, for, for clerical activism from the state uh, is certainly part of it. Uh, now, Sistani's rivalry with uh, Sadaka Sadr didn't end with Sadaka Sadr's death because uh, Sadaka Sadr had a son, Muqtada. Uh, now, Muqtada was a young man and not uh, of a stature where he could give fatwas and be followed by people as a religious authority. Not an Ayatollah by any means. Uh, and uh, Sadaqa Sadr indicated that until you know, such a time as that would be the case, uh, his son and his followers generally should look to Ayatollah Khadim al-Ha'ri uh, as their religious uh, um, authority. Not Sistani, but al-Ha'ri. Now al-Ha'ri left Iraq. Re- went to Qom and refused to live under American occupation. He demands an immediate Amer- American withdrawal uh, and so forth. So uh, Sistani has rivals, continues to have rivals. Muqtada emerged as a political rival, not a religious one because Muqtada does not have that stature, but Al Hayri is a religious rival. By the way, we just had Eid al-Fitr last week, the celebration of the breaking of the Ramadan fast. And there's always difference of opinion about which day that is, depending upon when the moon is sighted and, and, and so forth. The Iraqi Shia celebrated, it split into three groups. They celebrated on three different days. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So, uh, Tuesday, was, was, cele- was commemorated by um, people who followed Khamenei in Iran. And Wednesday was commemorated by people who followed Al Ha'ri from Qom. And Thursday was Sistani's pick. The Pan Arab press, Sharq uh, al Awsat, reported that the Wednesday gatherings, Al Ha'ri, were the biggest. And that's the first indication I've seen of al Hari maybe having, gradually coming to have a larger following in Iraq than than Sistani. And I'm not entirely sure it's true because the Circle Outside is published from London, and how would they know? Um, uh, Sistani... One of the last big things Sistani did before he became more quiescent was to stop the fighting in Najaf in August of 2004, almost with a Gandhi-like gesture. He, he had had angioplasty in London. He flew back uh, via Kuwait. Uh, I think the Americans wouldn't have been happy with him showing up. And he went through British territory to Basra. And in Basra, he announced that Shiites should just march on Najaf. Uh... Unarmed civilians just come into this war zone where the Mahdi army and the marines were fighting. And he went up in a motorcade and the Shiites obeyed him in very large numbers. Thousands of people converged on Najaf. And as they went into Najaf, gradually it became impossible for the two sides to fight. uh, And they stopped. And Muqtada escaped and... uh, I talked to a marine commander who was there and, uh, uh, later, and he, he said he was very happy about it all, that Sistani solved their problem for them. Uh, but after that, they had elections. Sistani backed a Shiite coalition of many parties that really uh, gave the Shiites an opportunity to vote as a bloc. And since they're a majority, surprise, they win. Uh, there were other ways that this election could have gone, but the people around Sistani gamed it out, and they figured out how to have a Shiite victory. So the United Iraqi Alliance, which is the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, the Dawah Party, and other Shiite parties, uh, win this election. Uh, And then, as Sistani had told Bremer in his fatwa that should happen, the, the elected parliament crafted the permanent constitution in the summer of 2005, Uh, and put in a provision that no law may be passed by the civil legislature which contradicts Islamic law. Uh, And uh, initially, there was going to be a paragraph that established a five-person clerical council to to review legislation and strike it down if it was un-Islamic. Zalmay Khalilzad The Kurds, some of the Sunnis, and the White House, as well as um, I think the women of the world, all united against this this prospect of, uh, of Iraq being made more or less explicitly an Islamic state and pushed back in the committee in parliament that was drafting the Constitution and got that taken out. So a special place for the clerical establishment in Najaf is not in the Constitution. The Shiites would very much have liked to have it there. Uh, And this provision is there that no law may be passed that contradicts Islamic law, uh, but there's no enforcement mechanism for it. And then another big issue was personal status law because Iraq had a civil personal status code under the Ba'ath, which actually goes back to 1959 and and the military government. Uh, the Shiites would very much like to have the, the, the religious uh, Shiite parties would like to have gotten rid of the civil code and had every Iraqi go to religious courts for marriage, divorce, inheritance, and so forth. Uh, and that looked like it would go through, but again, there was pushback from the Americans and, and the secular Iraqis. Uh, and so they they put this mishmash in the constitution that says that every person will be able to choose. The legal system under which their personal status law is adjudicated, and um, I advise all young Iraqis to go into the law because I think that clause alone will generate lawsuits for, for for hundreds of years. I mean, what would you do if if the woman wants to be under secular law and the husband wants to be in Shiite law? How would you decide juris, jurisdiction if it's if it's chosen that way? Uh, but. Uh, this is a compromise because the, the, the religious parties very much would have just liked to get rid of, uh, of, the, of the civil law. Um, Sistani also has been a strong supporter of, of a strong central government. Some of the Shiite parties, like the Supreme Council, have increasingly favored uh, a soft partition of Iraq and a kind of Shiite section in the south. Well, I've been telling you about Sistani's ideas and his actions in, in the first couple of years after the overthrow of Saddam uh, because that was when he really filled a, a vacuum of authority. Uh, with the rise of the political parties, many of the functions that he had taken on were devolved on, uh, on the parties, uh, and he did not you know, directly interfere in the writing of the Constitution because he felt that should be the elected uh, deputies of the Iraqi government's uh, job. Then in 2006 and 2007, Iraq descended into this apocalyptic violence in which Sistani's ideas about governance really were the last thing on anybody's mind. And Sistani had stood for no reprisals. So he had told the Shiites repeatedly, Sunnis hit you, don't hit them back. Uh, and the tribes would come to Sistani and say, we know who hit us, we want to get them. And Sistani says, if you do that, you go to hell. Uh, and people listened to him for a while in 2004 and 5, but over time the desire for revenge grew and the, and the, and the violence became so horrific that, that this, even a very authoritative voice like Sistani's was drowned out. And Sistani announced through his aides that he was just withdrawing from politics because it just had become impossible. He didn't want to fritter away what authority he had left. So Sistani has invested a lot in trying to maneuver the constitutional system of Iraq into a, a Shiite democracy. Not a complete democracy because there are limits on it uh, in some ways, and, and he does envisage a, a powerful role for the clergy and something, but something much closer to a, a, a democracy than what is in Iran, where the clerics really run the government, can interfere, can dismiss people, can close newspapers and so forth. They don't have that authority in the Iraqi constitution, and Sistani didn't want them to have it. Here's the danger. If the Iraqi experiment goes bad, and I mean really bad, much worse than it is now. The government collapses or it goes back to dictatorship and strongman rule or whatever. Is Sistani's alternative to Khomeinism permanently or, 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 or as good as permanently uh, uh, disgraced? Uh, in, in a way, it seems to me quite unfortunate that this contentious and very unlikely terrain for a democratic government that is Iraq should have been the crucible for Sistani's experiment in, 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 a, in a melding of, of Shiite Islam and Enlightenment principles. Uh, and you have to ask yourself whether, as Iraq goes forward, an elected government is going to be able to survive, uh, whether the Shiites will be able to avoid a tyranny of the majority, uh, whether the Kurds will secede, and so forth. And the effect that will have on on legitimacy and the acceptance more widely of Sistani's ideas. Because these ideas about parliamentary Shiism have become enormously influential in Bahrain, in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, among the Amal party in in Lebanon of of the Shiites there, not so much Hezbollah, and then among some sections of the reformists in Iran, and and Iranian reformists who have had demonstrations and so forth have sometimes chanted Sistani's name. I think some of the younger dissident clerics like Mohsen Kadivar are very much in Sistani's school now, uh, and so forth. So uh, the the question is, will the fragility uh, of Iraq Derail Sistani's experiment, uh, and, and are we seeing something new, a warning, or are we seeing uh, very unfortunately a miscarriage? Uh, I'll leave it there and take questions. Yeah, it's out of the Constitution. There's, there's no clerical review panel. And
2: he's accepted that.
1: Doesn't he? yeah, yeah, no, Sistani doesn't fight back against what Parliament does. Uh, he, he accepts, he, he says he doesn't want to dictate. You know, the, these people have been elected by the people. So I, I've never heard him uh, uh, sort of try to undermine an action taken by Parliament. Well, you see, the thing is that there will be a Supreme Court eventually. And what Sistani's followers at least say, I haven't heard him say anything about it, is that it's possible that some Ayatollahs could get appointed to the Supreme Court. And the Constitution does allow justices to have a clerical background. I think it's explicit. So there may yet be a place for the clergy to weigh in on on judicial review. But but no, as far as I can tell, Sistani has acquiesced that this panel is not going to be in the Constitution.
3: Yes, please. Um, really a follow-up to Jones' question, I guess. Um, so, two parts. Uh, are there successors to Sistani? I mean, whether intellectual or um, uh, secular intellectual or religious and, and intellectual of story. And also, is there any thought... The likelihood or possibility that as the secular government, the uh, people in power, if you will, to use your phrase, become, if they do become um, uh, successful, the authority of the religious element will diminish. I mean, the natural tensions here, at least for those of us who do like the West, as it were, where the Ayatollahs on this? Where is
1: Sistani. Yeah. Well, with regard to the first question about uh, Sistani's successor, Uh, There are four grand ayatollahs in Najaf. Uh, Sistani is kind of primus inter pares. He's he's first among equals. Uh, But he does have colleagues. Um, They are uh, Mohammedes Haq, who is a Hazara Afghan, uh, and came to Najaf with his family when he was 10. Uh, And... um, Muhammad Bashir Najafi, who's actually from Karachi and is Pakistani, uh, and uh, Muhammad Saeed al-Hakim, who is a distant cousin of Abdulaziz al-Hakim, the leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq. And people say that Muhammad Said al-Hakim, of the four, is the weakest personality-wise, and is a little unlikely to, uh, to emerge as Sikhtani's successor. But uh, Haq and, uh, and Najafi... Uh, it's thought to be between the two of them. Um, both have given their own fatwas, which uh, appear in the Iraqi press, very much along Sistani's lines on the nature of good governance. So I think Sistani's ideas about these things are kind of Najafi an consensus and not idiosyncratic. So therefore, I expect them to continue. And I think they're being taught to the seminary students, so the next generation is also going to have them. And I think that they're reinforced by disgust with Ahmadinejad in Iran and uh, kind of the backlash against uh, Khomeinism in Iran uh, and so forth. So in some ways, much of what Sistani is saying is also said by uh, Ayatollah Hossein Montazeri, who was in house arrest in Iran for saying these things and, and uh, uh uh, I don't think there's too much daylight between him and Sistani on these matters. So there's a kind of, um, a, a kind of a, a clerical consensus among the anti-Humanists that the Na'ani tradition needs to be revived and that's what would get them out of their current conundrum. Um, so uh, I expect either Bashir Najafi or uh, Mohammed Ishaq to, uh, uh, to succeed uh, Sistani. Of course, When a a Grand Ayatollah dies, the Shiite system is a kind of odd mixture, uh, from my point of view, of of Catholicism and televangelism. (laughs) So there is a hierarchical element to it in the sense that you only get to be a Grand Ayatollah if the Ayatollahs think well of you. So there's a kind of consensual College of Cardinals element. It's not a formal vote, but you have to have the support of the other... Uh, uh, leading uh, clerics, but then you would go nowhere unless the people gave you their acclaim. So you have to be popular with the man on the street. So that's why I say you know you have to be uh, you have to be both a cardinal and uh, Jerry Falwell at the same time. Uh, and so when a grand Ayatollah dies, there's a, a, a period of jockeying, as there was between Sistani and Sadako Sutter, for who would emerge as the leading cleric. And typically one. In outside of Iran, one would emerge. In Iran, there are multiple claimants all the time because they have they have uh, fair numbers. I think there are fifteen grand ayatollahs in the world, depending on how you count, because of course some of these claims are uh, are um, uh, disputed. And I've even had Iranians tell me know that there are thirty, uh, and uh, uh, a plurality of them is in Iran. So. Um, uh, there, there will be a moment of, of competition, but eventually I expect somebody to emerge at the top in Najaf. And so far, it looks as though they would tend to continue in Sistani's line. Um, what was the second part? The
3: prospect for diminished religious, oh, authority yeah. power, religious authority as secular power
1: grants. Yeah. Well, right, right. Uh, um, so far, Uh, All the elections that Iraq has had after Saddam have produced Shiite majorities and within the Shiite majorities it's the religious parties that have dominated. So the leading parties in Iraq are the the Dawah, the the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which was formed by Khomeini among expatriate Iraqis in 1982, uh, and uh, the, uh, the Sutter movement, Uh, of Sadako Sadr and his son. And um, on provincial councils and and national parliamentary elections, we've had a number of opportunities for Iraqis to express themselves at the ballot box now. Those three always come out on top. And poor Ghassan Atiya, who was saying, let's all be Iraqis together, and we'll have separation of religion and state, and we'll have secularism. He couldn't get elected to parliament. Uh, So um, that could change. But the expectation of a lot of the Americans, and the American Enterprise Institute, for instance, expected the secular figures like a Alawi to do very well in the second round of parliamentary elections in December of 2005. I predicted it wouldn't happen. It didn't happen. Uh, so, you know, political scientists talk about voter vol- volatility. There, there's been instances in which, you know, a party was very popular in one election. The second election comes along and... We- we're seeing some voter volatility nowadays, I think. Uh, was the self-identified Republicans are down to 33%, last I knew, and my suspicion is in the past two weeks it has sunk further. Uh, Iraqis haven't demonstrated that kind of volatility. In the two parliamentary elections we've had in the provincial elections, they've, they've been fairly stable in their political preferences, and it has been for the religious parties. So that may change in the future. But uh, uh, at the moment, I expect the provincial elections that are now scheduled for early next year, I think, uh, to produce in the Shiite South these same religious parties on top. And the religious parties tend to be deferential to Sistani.
0: Well, before I would, I'll come to you, uh, you mentioned this elections. So, uh, in addition to not accepting the Doctrine of Khomeini, that governments by the Islamic Jewish scholars. He just issued a statement about a month ago. It was a statement, it was not a fatwa. That the Iraqi Shiites do not need to vote for the pro-Iranian uh, members of some of the parties. They should vote for the best Iraqi yeah. candidates but who has best uh, policies that in the next election, which will be in uh, 2009. Now, if that is something that it's a, is it to cut the Iranian hegemony in Iraq? If that is so, how is, what is the situation in Lebanon? Because Lebanon is another country, the neighboring country in that, uh, in that region, uh, that which has also a Shia majority. Whether, is there that sort of tendencies to to somehow to, to cut the hegemony of the Iranian
1: Sure. System? Well, Sistani is a rival of Khamenei, the Iranian supreme leader. And uh, outside Iran, Sistani has millions of more followers than Khamenei. Very few people follow Khamenei as their spiritual guide because he's a politician. He's not really even an Ayatollah, but they gave him the title because it's embarrassing uh, 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 to have somebody be the supreme leader who's not an Ayatollah. But he hasn't written the kinds of things that would make you an Ayatollah. So, very few people follow Khamenei religiously. They might follow him politically. and Many more follow Sistani. But in southern Lebanon, for instance, where you have a Shiite population of some size, they're split. The Hezbollah tends to follow Khamenei. Uh, Amal tends to follow Sistani. In fact, when Sistani went to London for his heart surgery, he stopped in Beirut, and he met with Nabih Veri, leader of the Amal party. So Sistani is playing politics. Uh, and sure, um, a lot of people think that one of the reasons that the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq did so well in the elections was that behind the scenes, the Iranians were buying votes, sending in money, and so forth, giving it resources. And uh, Sistani may want to uh, to stop that this time. He may have anxiety about it. No. Well, um, uh, the the United Nations uh, uh, um, did try uh, to avoid a tyranny of the majority in the electoral system, but they failed. Uh, And not so much in the national electoral system, but inside parliament, uh, there is now no protection for minorities. So and this is, I think, one of the uh, reasons that the Sunni Arabs in Iraq have been so upset, because the Shiite parties made a coalition with the Kurds. Well, if you got the Shiites and the Kurds, you've got 80 percent, and their interests were diametrically opposed to most of the Sunni Arabs. The Sunni Arabs wanted a strong central government. The Shiites and the Kurds agreed on a loose federalism. Uh, they all denounced Joe Biden, but as far as I can tell, uh, they have they have bought his plan. They just won't admit it. Uh, the denunciations are guilt. Um, and and the Sunni Arabs are fit to be tied about this. And then there are a whole range of other issues uh, about which the Sunni Arabs have dire disagreements with the Kurds or the Shiites or both. And yet, as long as this coalition is there, the Sunni Arabs are going to be outvoted in parliament every day, every week, every month, until eternity. And there's no way for them to make themselves heard or to to get out of it. And uh, so in, I, I, there's a smart political scientist, I don't know if he's published it, sent me a paper he did, it was at San Diego, University of California, San Diego, in which he, he looked at the dynamics inside parliament as a tyranny of the majority, and moreover, that it would create violence. Uh, and so more recently, you know, on the Kirkuk issue of, of the oil, northern oil city of Kirkuk, which the Kurds want to incorporate into their Kurdistan, uh, the Shiites and the Sunni both being Arabs, have tended to side with one another against the Kurds. And all of a sudden, the Kurds, who were riding happy on their Shiite alliance and were very happy to overrule the Arabs all the time, got, the Sunni Arabs got, got a taste of their own medicine, and they began to see that, well, the Kurds could end up being uh, uh, the minority in parliament uh, on some issues. And I, I think their response to that would certainly be just to secede and say so long. So not only is there a tyranny of the majority inside uh, the parliament, there's no Connecticut compromise, there's no real protections for minorities, uh, uh, but it it is probably politically very dangerous for Iraq to, to have it be that way. Yeah, Well, of course, knowing what's in the minds of, uh, of ordinary people is very difficult. A lot of them in the Shiite South would be illiterate and, and so forth, but uh, they do hear the Friday sermons and uh, gossip circulates and there are things on radio and television and so forth. So here's here's how I would guess it is. Uh, A, the Sistani really does have a lot of authority among the Shiites of Iraq, uh, and a lot of people would listen to him uh, when he asked them to do something. So, for instance, when he asked them to vote, they vote in very large numbers. And it's not clear—it's uh, uh, not clear that they would have elected the United Iraqi Alliance twice with a fairly high turnout had Sistani not backed that. Uh, so, I think—I think if he's telling them this, they—they they will tend to accept it based on his authority. Um, and, and he doesn't actually meet much opposition inside Iraq on these ideas. And so, for instance, in January of 2004, in the lead-up to... Uh, well, when, when Bremer was arguing for caucus-based elections, there were fairly massive demonstrations against the Americans on this issue that they wanted one person, one vote, open elections. And Sistani... You know, provided the, the, uh, the, the, the fatwa that was the basis of those demonstrations. But the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq as a party got behind the demonstrations. The Sadr movement and Muqtada Sadr and his people were behind them and so forth. So one thing I would say is that a lot of Iraqi Shiites, from, from just reading their placards and looking at the demonstrations, whenever they've acted in, in mass terms, ha- have seen Shiite parliamentarism as a means for ending the U.S. occupation and for asserting more independence. Moreover, since the Shiites are a majority in Iraq, you could say there's an elective affinity between Shiite constitutionalism and uh, uh, and um, this kind of politics uh, and the Shiites in Iraq. Uh, so, um, as far as I can tell, they're committed to it. And uh, you know, I think they know, they're, they're, they're not so interested in the Khomeini system of clerical rule. Uh, a handful are, but it's not, doesn't seem to be a very popular idea in Iraq. And I think there are social reasons for that. For instance, uh, Hannah Batatu, the, the late uh, great expert on uh, Iraq, uh, actually did a count of mullahs per person uh, compared, compared between Iran and Iraq. And he found that Iran had a much higher proportion of mullahs per person than Iraq did uh, in the sense that you know, Iraq was a much more rural society, uh, it was much more tribal. Uh, Shiism was much more of a folk religion. So in Iran, you had all these big urban centers, Shiraz, and you know, there were about 11 big cities in Iran. And, and people were literate, and they were tied in with the clergy, and their father had followed and, and You know, there was a kind of Clerical culture in Iran that was very widespread, whereas Matatu thought that that's that's sectorial in Iraq. It's you know, a few people who live near Najaf and Karbala might be hooked into that, but it wasn't uh, wasn't that widespread. You get out to Amara or you get out in the rural areas with their tribes, Montafiq and so forth. What do they know from Marjaia? You know, it's uh, they might not even be able to name who it was. So um, it it may be that the uh, lack of Re- relative lack of appeal of Khomeinism in, in Iraq uh, just reflects a, a, a different social setting for Shiism. And, and uh, I think in Iraq, folk Shiism is much more important than, uh, uh, until fairly recently at least, uh, than, than the sort of urban clerical model. And I think the same thing is true in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, of course, that is one way that clerical influence could spread in Iraq is it's just a, a, a party begins appointing them like to the Supreme Court when it's established and, and, uh, and in the bureaucracy and so forth. The Sistani generally is against that. Uh, I can't figure out where Muqtada stands on these things, actually, although he's now in Qom. Uh, he, he has supported all of the elections and he's supported the... Voting on the constitution, so he, he he hasn't seemed to me to come out and break with Sistani on this theory of Shiite democracy. Uh, whether he would be would like to see more clerics in positions of power in Iraq, I've never seen him, you know, pronounce himself on that. Uh, so I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I think the phenomenon I'm describing may be pretty broadly based, and and the sudras being populist may actually uh, find it amenable, too. And remember that if you were an Iraqi Shiite, having an Iraqi Shiite cleric in a position of power in elected government is not scary to you. Uh, And so um, uh, even if the Sadrists did talk about that, which I haven't seen them do, nobody would think it was remarkable, I don't think. Uh, So um, I think the main thing is that you know whether you support the idea of a faqih, uh, whether you support a, a, the idea of a supreme leader who is in control of the army and, and you know, can dismiss parliament and so forth. And while Muqtada seems to have given a, an interview er, er, in summer of 2003 to an Lebanese journalist in which he said he did support Ulayat al-Faqih, uh, the Khomeini idea, uh, after that, I never saw anything more about it. And it seems to me that, practically speaking, he's backed off of that. And, of course, it doesn't really suit Iraq anyway. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think the Sudras are necessarily a pro-clerical party. I, I think they really are populists. And, and it would be very interesting to see these upcoming provincial elections, uh, if they're held, and they're held in a fairly upright way, will be the first ones in which the Shiites are not running as a coalition. The, the Supreme Council, the Sudras, the Dawah, I think they're all going to run independently of one another. And so that old Sistani strategy of just having one uh, umbrella group for the Shiites is going to fall apart. And, and for the first time, we'll be able to get a sense of who's actually more popular uh, at the ballot box and uh, as I said, this is assuming the elections are fairly up, upright and assuming that there's security because people might vote for whoever would have the militia to secure them. But uh, but making those assumptions, then we might actually be able to get a better sense of where people's heads are at. Uh, and my guess is the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq in a free and fair election doesn't do as well as it has been doing. The Sadrists do better, uh, but we don't know. The other... Wild card is that the Supreme Council obviously is Iran's cat's paw in Iraq, as well as being America's. So you can imagine Iranian intelligence and, and, and CIA operatives sort of meeting in back rooms together to give out the money to, to buy the votes, all for Abdulaziz Al-Hakim. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to track. Well, with regard to cross-sectarian and cross-ethnic uh, civil society, I mean, it does exist in Iraq. Uh, it's, it's been on hard times the last two years, but Eric Davis has written about it, and uh, I actually expect it to, over time to reemerge in a very powerful way. The thing about one has to remember about Iraq is, A, it's an industrialized society. I mean, admittedly, its industries have... Uh, suffered a great deal uh, over the last 20 years. But uh, it has an infrastructure for industry, and it had a big pharmaceutical, uh, petrochemical, and other uh, uh, factory base, uh, and it's an oil country. And the reason I'm saying all this is that over time, such a society would break down uh, neighborhoods, clans, all of those uh, more narrow social formations, because laborers will go where the, where the work is. It will be at factories at various points. I expect Basra to be the next Dubai. I may not get to see it, but it's going to get rich, assuming that security can be established. Uh, and, and it's going to draw... You, know, you talk about the Kurds wanting to secede from Iraq. I mean, in 15, 20 years, when the Kurds want the cushy jobs in Basra? Wouldn't it be crazy to secede from that? And, you know, they don't have that much oil left in Kirkuk. It's an old field. So, I mean, if I were a Kurd, I'd be trying, I'd be trying very desperately to get integrated into the new Iraq, not, not to secede from it. And I think the generation of Barzani and Talibani who were secessionists uh, may get reversed um, on, the, on this kind of issue. So... I, I see potential for cross sectarian and, and cross ethnic uh, civil society, and indeed for a mixing up of the population quite a lot, uh, with, with industry and, and uh, the resumption of the oil industry. Um, and it existed in Iraq. I, well, I was I did some research on Iraqi refugees in Jordan this summer, and I was in Amman, and uh, I talked to Iraqi professionals who have gone into exile. And some of them are in exile because they're, they're mixed families. So the wife is Sunni, and the husband is Shia, or vice versa. I had dinner with this Iraqi architect. And she... Um, they can't go back because uh, she's from Karada, and he's from Mansour, So she can't live in Mansur, he can't live in Karada. It's the Sunni and Shia. They, they, their communities have been ethnically cleansed, and, and, and it's, it's a consolidation. So... But that they're married... And they, it used to be fine as a testament to what Iraq used to be, uh, at least at that level. And, you know, there are a lot of, I, I don't know what the percentages are. You see different things in the press. It's amazing that they can't nail down their social statistics. But there have been between 3 and 20%, apparently, of Iraqi families are intermarried uh, across ethnic or religious lines. Uh, I don't know which it is. And, and there's a whole group of, of young Iraqis who are mixed-parentage Sunni father and Shia, mother, or vice versa. You know what they call themselves? Sushi. Ah. <laughs> uh,
0: Dr. Kuhn, uh, some of my students are interested in another question that I have asked on their behalf. What's the position of Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani on the awakening council? Mm. Because that's the support that they Is Each one of those people that are taking arms against the Al-Qaeda and others, it's about $300 American, which yeah. is given there. And uh, the Muriel Maliki's government want to bring them under the government's control. And some of them are even in prison right now. So what is Ayatollah Ali sistanis position on this uh, Awakening Council?
1: I, I haven't seen uh, a fatwa from him on the Awakening Councils. And, of course, they arose after he had announced a withdrawal from politics. So he hasn't been commenting so extensively on these things. We could go to sistani.org and ask him. Although, uh, a, a, a few weeks ago, it was hacked by al-Qaeda. Uh, and uh, so, it was offline. I don't know whether it's back up yet. But, uh, but I haven't seen a fatwa on the Awakening Councils. I do know, in general, all the Shiites I know from Iraq, especially Najafis, hate this idea. <laughs> they think it's very dangerous to, uh, to essentially create a Sunni militia, even if it's fighting Salafis. Uh, 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 who, who are takfiris and, and, and uh, see the Shiites as infidels. They just don't, they think it's it's one more battle that will have to be fought to disarm them and think it's a very bad idea. Uh, and um, so I would be a little bit surprised if Sistani is so happy about it. In general, I would say Sistani's philosophy of, of, of government is that there should be a strong central government uh, that it should be pluralistic in its form and in its political bases. And he actually, he's a modern man, you know. He, he's, he's, he's in his late 70s, but uh, he, he talks about a which is the contemporary Arabic word for pluralism. It's a fancy, fairly new word. I don't think it even would have been used 10, 15 well, years ago.
3: That
1: no, <laughs> that, that he has a fatwa on. Uh, about the, the about multiple, multiplicity of wives. Okay. but uh, no, he talks about political uh, uh, pluralism, and he means it the way progressives in the Arab world, like Sadadine Ibrahim, and so forth, mean it. So, and in his interviews, he uses it. So, um, I think he, uh, I think he would be opposed to the Awakening Councils because he would see them as sectorial and as detracting from the unity of Iraq.
0: One more question, please. Yes.
1: Well, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, uh, who's an admiral uh, and doesn't approve of the Iraq War, I don't think, um, because it ties down the U.S. military. Um, uh, Mullen appears to have sort of had a study done behind the scenes of what an Iran attack would mean for U.S. troops. And the results that came back were a huge catastrophe. Uh, they actually gamed this out in some ways. Uh, and uh, so Mullen became a strong uh, proponent of avoiding a war with Iran and indeed went to Israel in early June and read the Riot Act to the Israeli officer corps that they're not to attack Iran because even an Israeli attack would spill over onto U.S. troops. So US, U.S. troops in Iraq are well within missile range of Iran and and could be hit. Uh, And indeed, the ones in Afghanistan would be open to being hit by Iranian teams as well. Uh, Moreover, it's not just a direct response that you would be afraid of. Uh, It's indirect. It's guerrilla war and so forth. One of the reasons for which violence subsided in Iraq in the past year was apparently that the Iranians told Muqtada Sadr to cool it. And the Mahdi army has ceased uh, largely its operations uh, as a paramilitary in Iraq. And this is Iranian influence. And the Iranians apparently did this because they're convinced that the Mahdi army is a loose cannon and that its activities were keeping the Americans in Iraq. That if what you wanted was for the Americans to leave, you have to convince them that uh, uh, that there's no big threat. And, and so the Mahdi army was doing the opposite. So uh, uh, what I'm saying, you know, has appeared in the Arabic and Persian press as allegations, and I think they're plausible. So if, if you attack Iran, of course, they'll, they'll reactivate the Mahdi army. And they, they have clients among the Hazar in Afghanistan, uh, they have clients among the Tajiks in Herat. The, the U.S. military uh, is a sitting duck for the Iranians if they decide to go at it. Uh, Not to mention that the Hezbollah showed that it can make one-fourth of Israelis move house if it wants to. So um, from a U.S. military point of view, we're we're overstretched. We only have ten fighting divisions, and they're all tied down. Uh, We're not even getting proper rotations as it is. It would be very bad to, to enter a third conflict. And Mullen has concluded this. I think the officer corps in general have concluded it. And and the only one who really, really wanted it in the Bush administration, anyway, was was Cheney. And so I think they've gradually found a way to put Cheney in a box on this issue.
0: Thank you very much.